0: Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 15, to 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Jesus, we thank you for your good news. Help us to understand what that good news is and to apply it to every single facet of our life. Jesus, we say you are Lord and we are not. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, all that you have for your church this morning. In your name, amen. I do love a, a good reveal, a surprise, in the movies I watch. You know, you know the kind of movies where uh, they keep you guessing all the way along as to what's really going on, and then at the end, suddenly there's a big, like, reveal. Like, oh, it was him. It, it was her. Now everything makes sense. If the director is particularly generous... They'll quickly replay key moments of the film, showing you how it all makes sense with this new information, this, this key to understanding. And I think because I love those kinds of movies, that's why I love First Corinthians 15 so much. See, First Corinthians 15 functions in this epistle in, in much the same way. As we come to this chapter, something similar is taking place. He, see, Paul has, I think, uh, patiently and pastorally been dealing thus far with a pretty unruly congregation. We can agree, right? It's a tough church to pastor. And he's been dealing with them patiently, graciously, lovingly. But, but if you've been following along with us in September, you've caught glimpses of this in his responses that Paul is operating on a different foundational belief. He's working on a different operating system. He's drawing from a deep belief that impacts all these other pastoral situations. This one thing which changes everything. And so for instance he writes things like this. Hey hey guys don't visit prostitutes. Your body's not your own. And don't pledge your allegiance to me or 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 to Apollo's or to Peter. We're just servants and stewards. And you know what? Speaking in tongues is actually not the mark of Christian maturity. You think it is? Love is the mark. Love is the thing. I think it's fair to say Paul is inviting us in this entire letter into a completely different way of seeing, way of being. He's inviting us to consider a different operating system. And as we come to chapter 15, we have perhaps most beautifully and clearly in all the New Testament, the unveiling of the key that changes everything. What does Paul say in our text this morning? Now, I would remind you of the gospel. Of the gospel. The gospel is the key, the the character The protagonist, the operating system behind everything, not only in 1 Corinthians, but in fact, the entire Bible. The Bible does not make sense without the gospel. The Bible is not a good news book without the good news of the gospel. Everything hinges on the gospel. See, that's what that word gospel means just good news. And next week, we'll see this more in depth, but Paul, he summarizes the good news like this. He says, the good news is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See, there were many good news messages in Paul's day. There are many good news messages in, in our day, but, but Paul's good news And and the good news of the Bible and and the good news that we proclaim here each and every Sunday morning has everything to do with, with Jesus. Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. Jesus who was buried. And Jesus who rose again on the third day. This is the good news message that we proclaim and will always proclaim. And it seems as if this key, this bedrock teaching... It's something that the church in Corinth is prone to forgetting. Again, how how did Paul begin? Now I would, what? Remind you. Remind you. Seems like the church in Corinth has a case of, of gospel amnesia. But in fact, it's actually worse than that. At the center of this chapter is the problem that Corinth is experiencing. Paul says this in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, here's the problem, church. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Forgetting the key of the gospel and forsaking the key of the gospel, I think safely encompasses all who are sitting here this morning to to one degree or another. It encompasses you and me. So you might be in the forgetting camp. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. The gospel is nice. The gospel is cute. You remember at the camp, you were preached that gospel once, and you've moved on from it. Right? You assume the gospel, and the gospel has no current bearing on your life. As author Tim Keller says, it was your ABCs of the faith, the beginning bit of your faith, but it should be the A to Z, all of your faith, everything. The gospel we're going to see over the next three months is as equally important as the day you enter the faith to the day that you die in the faith. We we never leave the gospel. We we, we never move beyond it, uh, grow wiser than it. Uh, We always remain in the gospel. And, And maybe you've forgotten that. Corinth has. Still for others, it's not a matter of recalling something you already believe. But believing in something for the first time you don't think is actually true. The, the, the some who say there is no resurrection of the dead includes you. You're, you're part of that sum. You're in that group. And let me just say to you again, for three months, we're unpacking the gospel. You could not have joined us at a better time. We're just going to talk about the gospel for, for three months. And, and you know what? I know some of you, when you heard that, you're like, ugh. And if I'm being honest, as I'm preparing for this section in 1 Corinthians, I was a bit like, ugh. Because we've just come from what? Like spiritual gifts, right? Those were wild. And before that, it was sex. And then before that, it was idolatry. And then, right? And then Paul says, no, the thing that you need to know, church, the thing that we need to know, church, is the gospel. Is the gospel. Today, Paul's going to show us four things. He's going to say, this is how we use the key of the gospel. He'll say this. This is the gospel that we receive. We stand on the gospel. We hope in the gospel. And we hold fast to the gospel. First thing, we receive the gospel. Let me just back up for a bit here. The Bible teaches, Jesus taught, the prophets taught, uh, Paul taught that, that we are a people fundamentally in need of rescue. That we are right now outside of Jesus in, in a perilous position, in a perilous place. And, and maybe you come this morning, and this is how I used to think, and, and you're thinking my biggest hurdle to following Jesus is this resurrection bit. Now, albeit that's a big hurdle. To say someone who was dead is now alive, not only alive, but now reigns forever and is coming back. That's a big hurdle. I get that. But what I want to suggest this morning is that the bigger hurdle to you, the bigger hurdle to you believing in Jesus has nothing to do with the resurrection, but has everything to do with your own belief in your self-sufficiency. There's this presuppositional foundational belief in the church, in the scriptures, that we need rescue. That we are not good enough on our own. See, author Tim Keller identifies our current culture as living in a performance narrative. uh, What philosopher Michael Sandel calls uh, the tyranny of merit, right? And if you think you you don't live by a performance narrative, I I invite you uh, to consider the lines that you've drawn in your life. So for example, maybe you've come this morning and you're, you're a cultural conservative. That, that's how you identify. Your YouTube algorithm is all sort of conservative echo chamber stuff. And, and, and you come this morning and you've drawn lines. And conservatives assure themselves that they are on the right side of history by, by drawing lines between those who uphold traditional values and those who don't uphold traditional values, right? That's, that's how they assure, assure themselves. Liberals, on the other hand, assure themselves that they are on the right side of history by drawing a line between those who are progressive and those who stand in the way of, of progress, those who are uh, narrow-minded or, or small-minded. We all draw lines. I could go through each group. We all draw lines. And, and in fact, the drawing of lines is inevitable. You, you can't get away from it. I'm not suggesting we do. We all tell ourselves that we are enlightened or on the right side of history, we love that phrase, based on certain beliefs or practices we hold to. Again, lines are unavoidable, good and evil, right and wrong, life and death, these are all very real things. So the Bible does not say there are no lines, rather it says all of humanity is on one side of the line, all of us. Everyone, you and me. And the reason that the Bible gives for putting us all on one side of the line is this word called sin. Our rebellion against God and his created order, his law. Rebellion that, yes, extends to our own individual evil, but beyond that, to systems of evil, whole movements of evil, systemic Havoc wreaking evil on creation and creatures alike. Rebellion. And so, knowing that something is wrong, something is not right, while our world, sometimes us, while, while our world tries to live by a performance narrative to get us across that line, the Bible invites us into a different kind of story into a paradigm-shattering reality. It's the story of grace. Of grace. A story where the move from death to life, from darkness to light, from doom to salvation is contingent not on your performance, not on your faithfulness, not on your ethnicity, not on your cultural righteousness, but on God's grace expressed in the good news of Jesus. See, here's what this means. Those who are saved by grace, this is one author, those who are saved by grace are not those who are smarter than others, more rational than others, better behaved than others, kinder or humbler or more generous than others, or better by any criterion, any other criterion of performance whatsoever. Those who are saved by grace are saved, listen Christ City, despite their performance, not because of it. So what has God graciously done? God sends his son, sinless deity, fullness of God, to, to die in the place of sinful humanity, to reconcile not only individuals, but Colossians tells us all things to himself through the blood of the cross. Jesus died to bring you across the line. To bring us across the line. To put you on the right side of history. God's side. And all that remains is for you to believe. See, belief. Faith in the gospel alone saves me and saves you. And so we believe as a church that Jesus is speaking to you this morning when he says in John 3, 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. No. No. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. What does He say? But in order that the world might be saved through him. Through Jesus. In Jesus. This gospel saves. Again, all that remains is for you to believe it. Or in the language of 1 Corinthians 15, receive it. Again, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Now, this might seem really obvious, but I want us to note Paul's role and Corinth's role in what's happening here. And and to picture this, I want to give you an image that you should be familiar with as Christmas has just passed. Imagine for a moment a delivery person arrives at your door. They have for you a package. You did not order it, you do not know what it is, but it's there. In fact, it's a precious package it's flanked with a security detail, right? The box has been carefully handled all the way along. Now, in this scenario, what is your role? This is not a trick question. Ready? Thank you. That's it. Receive it. To take it, And bring it into your home. Listen, your job is not to modify or alter the package. I'll I'll take half of that, please. You know, brandish a sword and sort of cut it in half, right? I'll take half of the package, please. Your job is not to reject the package. Oh, oh, this can't be for me. I, I didn't order this. Surely you have the wrong house. Nor is your job to try and pay for the package. Oh, let let, let me give me some money. Like, like, surely this can't be free. Let let me just pay for it. No. Your job is simply to receive it. To take it and take all of it. This, this Christ city, this faith-filled receiving is how you and I get our hands on the gospel. We cannot take it in parts. I like the bit about Jesus loving me even dying on the cross for me, so romantic. But but I don't like what it says about how bad I am or, or my need for the cross in the first place. We cannot pay for it. As Paul says in Acts 20, 24, it's the gospel of the grace of God. And we cannot say it is not for us that Jesus has the wrong addressed. For surely the Lord as Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9, is not willing for any to perish. Our job is to sign for it, to bring it in our home, and allow it to change everything. We we receive it. We, We receive it. But what about Paul? What's Paul's role? Or, we could ask for us today, what's our role as those who present the gospel to others? Well, our role as was Paul's role, is to pass it on. To pass it on without modification or cost. The same gospel we received. Again, if we go further into verse 3, we see, by the way, that that's all that Paul is doing. He's just passing on what he was first given. Look at verse 3. He says this. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what does Paul say? What I also received. What I also received. When Maisie and I, my wife and I got married, uh, we were given uh, some woodworking from her grandfather. Um, I'm not someone, if you can't tell, uh, who uses my hands other than to type on a keyboard. And so I said, thank you. And then I asked Maisie what I'm looking at. But we were given these sort of these heirloom pieces. And one of those things that was given to us was this cup. Again, I don't know how it works, but it's a cup made from one single piece of wood. Does the word lathe mean anything to you? And, and so it's this cup, and, and there's two rings on the bottom of it. It's, it's, it's quite beautiful. I think it lives in one of our drawers. <laughs> we were given this gift from, from Maisie's grandfather for the purpose that, that one day we would pass this gift on uh, to our sons. And they would pass it on to, to their children. It was a gift baked into it, this very idea of, of passing it on, that it would not remain with us forever. Did you, you get what I'm getting at here? The, the gospel is that kind of gift. It's a gift that in its very nature cannot remain with us. Must be shared, must be given away. And, and lo and behold, we we find, right, like the disciples with those baskets of bread, that as much as they give it away, still it remains. And as much as they give it away, still they have more. The gospel is that kind of gift that we have to give away. Give away. And you might say, well, Jake, I'm tripped up here. Because Paul says in verse 1, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you. And you say, great, I have an out. I'm not a preacher. I'm, I'm, I'm a congregant. I'm a member. I do cafe. I'm not a preacher right? I'm not a preacher. Well, let me just say, you need to see in the original language, the word that we find translated twice in our passage as preached, it's actually better translated as gospeled. So the word preached, let me just say this so you hear it, is not actually in our passage. So connotations of preachers and preaching and, and a special office that is over there and above you and doesn't have to do with you is actually not in our passage. Paul is talking about the gospel he gospeled to them. That's the word. The word he gospeled to them. Which, by the way, is more than just telling someone about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but actually is seeking to apply the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to every bit of our lives. That's what it means to gospel the word. The gospel that saves, Paul says, is the gospel that we receive and pass on. Second thing, Paul says we stand on the gospel. The gospel that saves is the gospel we stand on. Paul says the gospel I preach to you is the very same one in which you stand. The gospel has past implications. In receiving by faith you have been saved. But the gospel also has present implications. You are standing in it now, Paul says. What does that mean? What does that mean? On one hand, it's a personal reminder. Maybe you're in a season of particular anxiety right now. Everything is new. Everything is unsure. Your future is cloudy. You've been hurt. And Paul says, look, reach down. And just touch it. Just touch it. The gospel's not going anywhere. You are standing on the finished work of Christ. And nothing can change that. In this country or another country. In hardship or in blessing. Nothing can change that. You have to hear that. It's a great personal reminder for us this morning. The gospel's not going anywhere. It's right here. It's more real than the stage. But I actually think the primary thrust of what Paul is getting at is not a personal reminder, but actually a corporate reminder. He's saying to the church in Corinth, your status for belonging in this community, right? Your belonging here with us in this church is on the basis of the gospel alone. You stand as part of this fellowship. You become part of the people of God, not on the basis of your merit or your ability or your charisma, but on the basis of the gospel. You're standing in the community on that fact alone. See, up until this point, isn't it true? The Corinthians have emphasized almost everything but the gospel. Almost everything but the gospel in their appeal to their standing in that community. They've said things like this You know what? I've got this gift. And this gift means I'm part of this group. This gift means I belong. Or or they've emphasized their sexual practices. You know, I'm married and I have a wife, but I'm so holy, I don't even sleep with my wife, right? Or they've emphasized where their food comes from. Was it sacrificed to idols? Was it not sacrificed to idols? And while all these things, our gifts, our physical lives... The food we eat needs to be informed by the gospel. None of these things are the basis or the foundation on which somebody belongs here in this church, in Jesus' church. Your standing in the church is on the basis of what Christ has done and Christ has done alone. What does it take to belong to Christ, to belong to his people, only to receive his gospel? Third, Paul says, Hope in the gospel. The gospel that saves is the good news that will bring us to the end. Maybe the language, look at your Bibles with me. Maybe the language you find at the beginning of verse 2 of being saved, right? You saw that? Being saved is strange to you. How does that work? Are we saved or are we being saved? I want to use an illustration I used back in 1 Corinthians 1. I know you remember that sermon. And so, again, you can just, you know, gloss over here. But in verse 18, Paul said this. He said, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so here's the illustration. We can think of the past and the present and and the future of our salvation like being In a boating accident. Just go with me. Right? You were saved once and for all when the Coast Guard pulled you out of the water. When you trusted in Christ, you were saved. You are saved as you sit on the boat, right? The gospel has become the basis on which you belong to God's people, the church. You are saved. You experience right now your salvation and you are being saved as that boat makes its way to the shore. We do not yet experience the fullness of Christ's kingdom, the fullness of our salvation, the fullness, as we'll see later, of new resurrected bodies. And so one old dead theologian wrote 500 years ago, in a helpful way, he said, for even though by the death of Christ, complete salvation has been given to us, A salvation that was proclaimed by the gospel and embraced by faith. You have been saved. Nevertheless, he says, we do not yet take possession of that salvation perfectly as long as we are living in faith and in hope. We saw in 1 Corinthians 13 that that faith and hope will come to an end because they'll be realized at the return of Christ. Only love will endure. We still now live in faith and in hope. And over the next few months, we're going to be invited to see how the good news of Jesus' resurrection impacts our future. What the good news means for our body. What Jesus' body has to do with our body. Yet the future hope of the gospel is meant to have present implications. And specifically, it should fill us with hope. With hope. The funny thing about the gospel is that you can know its contents really well. You can download all the information. You can read all the books. You can sing about it every Sunday. You can hear it preached from the pulpit every week. You can even shout out the occasional amen. But the gospel is not just a message to affirm. No, in in fact, more foundationally, the gospel is the power of God to transform us, to change us all of us, our hearts, our desires, how we live and move in this world. The gospel is not just a message to download, it's meant to transform us. And if I can speak just personally for a moment, one of the ways that I am constantly confronted with my functional unbelief in the gospel is in my tendency to despair. Uh, Over the Christmas break, which is fun if you, if you have, you know, um, I won't say that. <laughs> Christmas is so fun. Over the Christmas break, I, I found myself um, in that same despairing place. I was also reading for the first time uh, the, the Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings, at that, that first book. Now you know my shameful secret that all my illustrations are coming from the movies, right? And, and, and not the actual books. But if you don't know the story, it's pretty simple. Uh, Bad guy, ring, um, they're trying to destroy the ring. If the bad guy gets it, he wins. If they destroy it, they win. That's a basic overview of Lord of the Rings. Nerds, don't come at me. (laughs) And in that book, as they're trying to figure out how to destroy Sauron, right, the bad guy, the the picture grows increasingly bleak. And the more they discuss it, uh, uh, their mission to destroy the one ring, right, grows in their mind as this impossible thing. And the accusation is even made at the council in Rivendell that, that their plan to use a hobbit, a small and insignificant creature, is born from despair. Just, just a plan of despairing people. And yet Gandalf, the old and wise wizard, he pipes up. He says this. He says, It is not despair, for despair is only for those who see the end beyond all doubt. I want to say that again. Despair is only for those who see the end beyond all doubt. Please hear this as someone who you just heard is prone to bouts of depression and despair. Hear this with all the pastoral sensitivity I intend behind it. Despair is an arrogant thing. It is an arrogant thing. Despair says, I know my future and nothing good waits for me. Despair says, around the corner lies only more heartache, more suffering, more sorrow. I don't want to give it away. But in 1 Corinthians 15, we find that the gospel gives us hope that, verse 22, though we will die in Christ, all shall be made alive. And that when Christ returns, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. And that body, that body that is now, for the first time or for a while, beginning to give you aches and pains or or turn on you in a much more sinister way, that body will be raised imperishable, glorious, powerful, a body suited for life in the spirit. And that mind, that mind, my mind, your mind, which seems more like an enemy today than a friend, that too will be made new. Friends, we do know the end. And it is not the kind that lends itself to despair, but to hope. To hope. Last one. We hold fast to the gospel. What does it mean to hold fast to the gospel? The language of holding fast in the New Testament usually refers to a situation of of persecution or temptation. right? Of being led astray or, or being attacked in some way. It's the imagery of being in a boat, right? Battered by a storm. And you hold fast to the mast amidst the swirling winds and pounding waves. In our passage, we're in order to hold fast to a message, to the word Paul preached to you. Well, how do we do that? How do we hold fast? I'll end with this. We do that. We hold fast to the gospel every time we allow all of it the bits about receiving God's love and showing God's love and the bits about Jesus taking the wrath of the Father in our place and being agents of reconciliation in this world when we allow all of it, not just some of it, but all of it to shape us, to be our authority, when we just go like this and receive it. We hold fast to the gospel when we ensure that how much money you make or what you've done in your past or how charismatic you are, never becomes the basis for someone to belong to the church of Jesus, to belong to Jesus. When we welcome people purely, as Paul says in Romans 16, because Christ has welcomed us. When we stand in the community of God's people on the gospel alone. We hold fast to it when we make the gospel our hope. Not homes, not cars, not vacations or cryptocurrency. Holding fast to the gospel is to say our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, to Jesus, and he is coming back to make all things new when we hope in the gospel. The gospel that saves must be received. It must be our only basis of standing in the church, and it must be our only hope That's what it means to hold it fast. To hold fast. Unless, unless Paul says, unless you believed in vain. Unless he's saying, you don't actually believe this. Unless he's saying, you haven't given careful consideration to the gospel. Unless you've mistaken it for a way to get rich now or make friends and influence people. Uh, Unless you made the decision to follow Jesus, not from faith in his life, death, and resurrection to save you, but for for a family reason or or a cultural reason. I just want to stop for a moment and, and just recognize that what Paul says at the end of our passage today is supposed to be a challenge to all of us. How have you received the gospel? Is it because your family are Christians? Is it because your ethnic group tends towards Christianity? Is it because it seems like a good way to live in this world, and I don't know any other way? Paul says, consider the gospel. Wrestle with the gospel. And once it grabs hold of you, submit your life to the gospel. All of it. All of it. Unless you believed without careful consideration. That's what I want to leave us with this morning, Christ City. Over the next three months, like I said, we're going to be considering very carefully the gospel. And at every turn, I want you to ask yourself, do I believe this? And if I believe this, how would my life change? What would it look like? What would happen in me? What would happen in my community? What would happen in our church? Paul writes to all of us. Paul writes to all of us. He says, unless you believed in vain, carefully consider the gospel of Jesus. Turn to him, receive his good news, and trust him. Let's pray. Lord, we want your gospel message to shape us deeply. We want it to shape our language. We want it to shape what we do with our homes. We want it to shape how we look at work. We we want it to get in every every crevice of our lives. So Lord, would you mercifully and graciously by your Holy Spirit over the next three months shape our church by the gospel? Lord, we say all, all of that this church is, all, all of who we are belongs to you. We want to submit ourselves to your word, to your good news message that we have received from the apostles. And so have your way among us. Be glorified in us that we might pass that message on to someone else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.